You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we continue our four-part series on Iran, our relationship with the now-titled Islamic Republic, and how Iran came to trigger many of the modern changes and enhancements to our national security legal structure. We may be captivated by the midterm elections, but the rest of the world is keeping its eye on Tehran. In the last 10 days, Iran has experienced protests across the country at an almost unprecedented scale. And the Treasury has announced more sweeping sanctions against Iran than there have ever been. At the same time, Iran has been supplying attack drones to Russia for its use in Ukraine. Now, why has Iran aligned itself with Vladimir Putin? Is this relationship between Russia and Iran entirely new? And why did the United States enter into a decades-long relationship with Iran that seemed, to the uninitiated at least, to unravel overnight when the Shah was ousted by forces aligned with the Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979? Our guest today is Ray Take of the Council on Foreign Relations. Before his tenure at CFR, he was a fellow in International Security Studies at Yale University, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a professor at the National War College, and a professor and director of studies at the Near East and South Asia Center at the National Defense University. Mr. Taki holds a PhD from Oxford University in the UK, and he's written extensively on Iran and on US policy toward the Middle East. He's testified several times before various committees of the United States Senate, some of which we can hyperlink in the notes to this podcast. And he's appeared as an Iran expert on a variety of thoughtful, by the way, television programs, including PBS NewsHour. Take has served as senior Iran advisor to Dennis Ross, the former director of policy and planning at the United States State Department. And he did that in 2009. And Take was born in Tehran. So he's not an outside commentator. He's also the author of several well-written pieces on Iran and a book entitled The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. Ray Takei, I can't pronounce it exactly right, but thanks for coming in this evening. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, as an expert, I'm just going to open the floor to you. What we need today, and we hope to hear from you, is a brief history of Iran, its governmental structure over the years, because I know our last guest described it as a democracy, and how it came to be known now as the Islamic State. Well, in terms of the structure of the Islamic Republic that came about in 1979, it is an amalgam of unelected institutions and elected institutions. And as you would understand, uh, unelected institutions hold most of the power. There's an office of the Supreme Leader that is occupied since 1989 by Ali Khamenei that essentially has the last word on all things, legislation, office uh, candidates for public office, and so forth. There's a guardian council whose responsibility is to vet legislation and candidates to make sure they meet Islamic standards and have the relevant credentials. But there also coexists a measure of representation with elected parliament, a presidency, and city councils, and so forth. Those elections have become far less competitive in recent years, with the last presidential election in 2021 being essentially a very stage-managed affair. The elections always were useful for the Islamic Republic because they acted as a safety valve. Today, they are no longer doing so. 
So it is essentially a system whereby there are a lot of checks and balances on the rights of people to express their opinion. This is different than a monarchy. In the monarchy, of course, all power was situated in the monarch. And during the reign of Reza, Mohammed Reza Shah Pahlavi, the last monarch of the dynasty, really all decisions were made by one person. And the system was very, very personalized form of dictatorship. The Islamic Republic is still government of institutions, although most of those institutions are held by people who do not really respond to the will of the population. Okay, but historically, you mentioned that it was also a monarchy, and it's also had a prime minister and other types of functioning governments over time. Focusing, if we could, only on um, the time period of the last, let's say, 100 years, what structures have been in place and how well have they worked, sort of given the discovery of oil that occurred, I guess, when in the early 20th century in Iran? During the time of the monarchy, the institutions of Iran went through some change. In the early part of the Pahlavi dynasty, 1941 to about 1960, the system was, as you mentioned, there were prime ministers, there were parliaments, and actually there was some division of power. The parliaments had a mind of their own. The prime ministers essentially were people who wielded authority independent of the monarch. This was not a representative democracy, but it was elite pluralism in a sense that the aristocratic class still maintained control over key institution of parliament, the cabinets, and the prime minister. So there was a division of power. That system actually worked very well uh, during the early parts of the monarchy. And it was flexible in terms of dealing with domestic affairs. And it was quite ingenious in terms of dealing with foreign relations. That's the system that breaks down in the 1960s with the rise of a more of a personalized authoritarian regimes and the parliament and others being reduced to rubber stamp organization. And the elite changes. Instead of the landed aristocratic elite and the merchant class, the process of modernization led to rise of technocratic class, which were better at mastering Western development paradigms than understanding the nuances of the Persian nation itself. The currency of exchange in Iran at that time became access to Western education and so on and so forth, as opposed to kind of the sensibility that the previous aristocratic class demonstrated. How did oil change all that? Well, oil actually bought substantial amount of revenue to the state and was generated from outside. In a sense, it wasn't in the process of taxation. It created patronage network. It created massive corruption, but it also spearheaded development. There was a lot of progress made in terms of education, infrastructure, urbanization, industrialization, and also a very heavy emphasis on military buildup, which was costly and unnecessary. So it was a mixed bag in a sense that oil allowed the monarchy kind of to be untethered by domestic constraints in terms of expenditures. But it also, one has to say, led to creation of universities, creation of healthcare centers and so forth. So it it did do the country a significant amount of good. I guess as we've come to look back on this time, we do see that Iran didn't actually own its oil as a practical matter. And I think that is something that I'd like you to elaborate on, because looking at it now, one has to wonder how that occurred, because it is theirs for extraction. It does appear, at least to somebody like me who does not know anything close to the amount that you do, that it had a certain corrupting influence on and um, steered who was in charge and how the politics there would unfold in the immediate aftermath of, you know, significant extraction beginning by the British. 
the British obtained a concession on developing Iranian oil in early 1900s. And that led to establishment of what was called Annual Iranian Oil Company, AIOC. So the British company, uh, which was uh, the British government, was a large shareholder in AIOC. So this is a relationship between a private company, British government, and Iranian government. And the British at that time had the extraction and marketing of the Iranian oil. And in exchange, they would provide Iran a percentage of the revenues that they obtained. Now, that percentage was paltry. At some point, AIOC paid more in taxes to the British government than it did in terms of revenues to Iran. It was an exploitative arrangement. And it gone on for a long time because, as you said, the British, along with others, their influence in Iran and their penetration of the Iranian oil sector led to corruption of the Iranian politics, paying off newspaper editors, parliamentarians, and so forth. So the British essentially became an aspect of Iran's internal life, an aspect of Iranian politics. All decisions had to be made in terms of the consultations with the British, who was a British ally, who was a nationalist, and so forth. So that level of external intervention in Iran had a, a significant influence on the politics and the, the sociology of the Iranian aristocratic class, in the sense that they were so intertwined with the British. Almost every question had to be in some way debated or consulted with the British. The British ambassador was one of the most important people in Iran at that time. So in that sense, the oil, the introduction of oil, the discovery of oil, and the selling of oil led to compromise Iranian sovereignty by a very heavy dose of British intervention in Iranian politics as a means of maintaining that economic asset. The Abadan refinery that, the, that was built by British and the Iranians was the largest refinery in the world for a very long time. The British Navy required it, and eventually the rehabilitation of the European economies in the aftermath of the Second War required access to cheap energy supplies. So in that sense, Iran was also critical in the efficacy of Marshall Plan and uh, European economic rehabilitation. Now, as we're looking right now at Iran and its supplying of various weapons items to Russia, I don't think a lot of people understand that Iran seems to have had what is in reality a centuries-old relationship with Russia, including when it was part of the USSR. Now, is that correct? And if so, I would ask you to elaborate on how that came to be and what that history is. Well, Iran and Russia are neighbors. In that sense, they have had a long-term relationship. At times, quite a contentious one. For a long time, it was said that the Russian czars coveted warm water ports in Iran. Uh, During the Second War, Iran was actually occupied by the Russians and the British, and at some point by the Americans. Persian corridor is what Churchill referred to it, and that was essentially a means of supplying the Soviet Union during the war. The Western Front was obviously preoccupied, and the port of Vladivostok in the east was often frozen. So you had essentially an occupation of Iran. The Soviets essentially established communist parties. That was the today Communist Party. That was one of the largest and most important political parties in Iran. That was in many ways beholden to the Soviet Union, as we now know with the archival record. Uh, in the aftermath of the war, the Soviet Union under Stalin's regime essentially occupied northern Iran and refused to leave in 1946 as the arrangement mandated. The British and the Americans did 
withdraw their troops as the wartime agreement suggested and demanded. And there was a talk of the Russians even taking up a whole chunk of Iranian territory, the Azerbaijan region. Uh, I would say during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the relationship between Soviet Union and Iran dramatically improved. It became a trade partnership. It became a relationship that they had. The Shah had largely destroyed the Communist Party within Iran, much to the chagrin and acceptance of the Soviet Union. So the relationship between the two parties becomes better. And as a matter of fact, the Soviets did not want the Shah's monarchy to collapse because they didn't know what the successor regime was and what it would look like. That was a conservative monarchy to their south, which they were comfortable with in many respects. During the Islamic Republic period, the relationship became very interesting after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in a sense that it became a more of a mercantile relationship. Iran was interested in surplus military equipment, which the Russian Federation had plenty of. It was interested in atomic energy supplies and, and infrastructure from Russia, and the Russians needed hot currency. So that relationship became more commercial. In the past 10 years, this has gained strategic debt. The two parties have cooperated in the Syrian civil war in terms of allowing President Assad to regain power. And recently, of course, with the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, it has gone to another level of intimacy. And right now, there's a lot of discussion within the Iranian political circles, perhaps Russian as well, about a new sort of a alliance, if you would, of Eastern powers, the, United, the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese, all of whom are subject to Western political intervention. So this, this idea of a sort of a new axis of resistance. And this is a relationship that is novel at this respect. It's the first time Iran has deployed military forces, military equipment, and advisors outside the Middle East in terms of supplies to the Russian Federation. So in some way, Iran has become a partner of Russia in the war in Ukraine against the Western alliance and against NATO. That is not an uncontroversial position within Iran. Even today, 40 former diplomats in Iran signed a letter saying that this is not what we should be doing, this level of intervention against the West, against NATO. How does this serve our interests and our foreign policy should be about national interests and not these particular adventures? But nevertheless, you begin to see certain commonality of perspective between the Russian Federation and the Islamic Republic today. Both of them tend to explain their predicament and their international policy to the prism of conspiracy theories. So that sort of ties that bind them together, I guess. Okay, and on that score, I'm gonna ask you to clarify a couple of things for our listeners as well. One of the things I think is important to sort of explain, which is the relationship between the Saudis and the Iranians. And I will tell you that when I speak to my friends who have their roots in Iran, I mean, they have certain terms that they use to describe the Saudis, sort of the Beverly Hillbillies. And the Saudis are becoming significantly invested once again in Europe. They're investing right now in Credit Suisse, for example, uh, if you've been tracking that today to a point where they will own up to 30% of one of the most revered and large banking institutions in the world. Can you please explain how the sort of threat or menace is perceived in terms of KSA and the relationship with Iran? As you mentioned, there's always been some cultural stereotypes that are used by both parties. And as with most cultural stereotypes, they're unsophisticated and unwarranted. During the time of the monarchy, the relationship with Saudi Arabia was actually workable 
in the sense both parties have common interests. They both were against Soviet penetration of the Gulf of the Middle East, and they both had alliance with the United States. As a matter of fact, and one of the ironies of history, the Nixon administration had developed a sort of a secret plan of Iranian intervention in Saudi Arabia should the monarchy collapse. Because in the 1970s, when people looked at the monarchies of Iran and Saudi Arabia, most of them thought that the monarchy in the Saudi Arabia would not prove durable. And they were sort of hoping that the Iranian monarchy, the sort of bulwark of stability, would rescue the Saudi state and preserve its energy resources should the monarchy collapse in Riyadh and you had disorders. In the aftermath of the revolution, that relationship has been very poor. It has to do with a number of factors. First of all, Iran's Islamic Republic has denounced the legitimacy of monarchical order, not just the monarchy within Iran, but the monarchy writ large as a sort of a as a sort of a anachronistic institution and that does not have any standing in modern uh, modern times. Second of all, these are both governments that to some extent establish their legitimacy or anchor their legitimacy on a transnational Islam. Iranians by export of their revolutionary message and Saudis by being custodians of the holy places. So they both anchor their legitimacy to some extent on religion and that creates competitive life. And then you have, of course, recently a very significant degree of heightened tensions between the two. In both countries, you have the rise of a very conservative government in Iran, and in Saudi Arabia, the rise of a fairly impetuous monarch, Prince Salman. That rivalry has played itself out catastrophically in Yemen, all over the Middle East. The, the two powers are competing for influence. This most catastrophic manifestation has obviously been in Yemen. I would say throughout the past couple of years, there have been diplomatic efforts to mend ties between the two states. And that diplomatic effort has been mediated by the Iraqis, which may be one of the reasons why it hasn't worked. But there have been efforts in the past of lowering the temperature. But at this particular point, they're both locked into a degree of rivalry that has not been seen for many years. The position of the Iranian government is that the protests against it are provoked by external actors, and those external actors are the United States, something called the Zionist entity, and Saudi Arabia. And there, periodically, other countries get added to it. Britain, French intelligence, uh, never Germans, but always the three countries, Israel, United States, and Saudi Arabia, and particularly a Saudi-funded broadcasting and media outlet in London, or uh, Iran International, which has a significant degree of audience within Iran. The, the fact that the Iranian government explains this internal predicament as externally generated has created a new degree of tension between the two countries. Let's talk for a minute about sort of the indelible image in most Americans' memory, which is the image of the Ayatollah Khomeini. He is, I think, viewed by many Americans as a villain, a terrorist, and unquestionably the kidnapping of embassy personnel was a terrorist act and the holding of them for a year. But who was the Ayatollah um, in terms of his opposition to the Shah? And how did he go from an exile to a leader? And how do his successors compare in terms of his appeal? Ayatollah Khomeini was in some way an innovator, he was a proponent of a certain idea, which essentially meant that 
that clerics have a right to rule, direct assumption of political power by a clerical class. That is not a new idea in, in Shi Islam's jurisprudence, but it is not the majority position. So in one sense, he was a very ardent proponent of the idea that religion should not just inform politics, but clerics should actually rule institutions of the state. And a, a fairly unprecedented assumption of power, and he gave it some sort of a theological standing. And, and the blueprint of the Islamic Republic was really a series of lectures that he gave while exiled in Iraq in the 1970-71, which became known as Islam, Hukumat Islami, Islamic government. He was an anti-American, very much in that sense nationalistic in terms of his opposition to closer assumption, a closer relationship between the United States and Iran that became very visible in the 1960s. He was always profoundly anti-Israel and indeed anti-Semitic. And that was another one of his objections to the monarchy, namely his subtle relationship with Israel. But he was also innovator. He was a coalition builder. He managed to appeal to the modern middle class by talking about anti-imperialism, by appealing to the student movement in terms of northern exploitation of the South. So in some way, he couches rhetoric, not just in religious lexicon, but in sort of a north-south divide that was very popular in Western and Iranian universities in the 1960s and 70s, namely that the capitalist industrial community is exploiting the natural resources of the South for its own industrial benefit, being oil being an example. And when the revolution broke out, he became a very central figure in it, I think primarily because he was exiled. While all the other political actors with Iran were prone to compromise with the monarchy because that was their situation, they were within the country, he was a maximalist. He called for overthrow of the monarchy. And he saw no reason why he should not essentially embrace a maximalist idea because he was in exile. Why should he offer a compromise message? Uh, at one point, one of the Iranian opposition figures went to Paris, his last place of exile, and said, you know, we have an agreement with the Shah for a constitutional form of government. So we all think we should sign on to that. And he said, well, you know, when I look at the street, I don't see anybody calling for a constitutional form of government. <laughs> I see him calling for Islamic government. So I'm not interested in compromise. He was uncompromising, indifferent to human life, and a very much an ideologue who was capable and willing to sacrifice a large number of people to meet his political objectives. But it should not go unnoticed that he was also an intellectual innovator in a sense that he managed to refashion Islamic canons to produce a governing template and managed to market that template to a modern middle class by talking about representation, even gender equality, and, and sort of the democratic features to religion. How his predecessor, he's only had one, one successor, Ali Khamenei, compared to him. Ali Khamenei is similarly a person of intellectual suppleness, tactical dexterity. Uh, he doesn't have the same charismatic authority. He doesn't have the same theological erudition, but he's in power for a long time, and he knows the mechanics of government. He's more involved in administration of government than Khomeini was, who was really in power for eight, nine years before he died. And so the administrative functioning of government, the bureaucratic interagency process bore him. Well, Ali Khomeini is very much a man of administrative state. He's a deep state guy. <laughs> Khomeini was more of a guide and so on. 
But he had an undisputed authority, which his successor doesn't. Now, to be fair, his successor has been in power for 32, 33 years, while he was in power for eight, nine years. So that's the difference between them. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.